so actually my first guest on the podcast is, was an old friend of mine um, named Kyle Tengler, and he's been on a couple of times. And he's, you know, a fellow plant nerd. Uh, we get together and we talk about plants. Uh, you know, we're, we're those people. And so soon after I took this job, he was up here uh, just chatting because we had actually worked together in this greenhouse as master's students, the one that I'm running now, which was kind of cool. Uh, and so we were just chatting about, you know, what was going on here and all that. And we were talking about the ways that indigenous peoples in our part of Texas manage the lands through uh, uh, fire and burning and um, different land management. Right? We were talking about that. And at the end of the, the conversation, I said, gosh, this would make an interesting podcast. And we laughed because neither of us believed it at the time. Hi there, I'm glad that you're listening to our podcast, What Are You Going to Do With That?, of the Minerva Center for the Rule of Law Under Extreme Conditions at the University of Haifa. I'm Dani, and as a PhD candidate, I talk with early career researchers about their academic journeys in the hope to get some useful tips and tricks. Today, I'm chatting with Vikram Bradley-Baliga, aka the Plant Prof, who is a lecturer and greenhouse manager at Texas Tech University. He will tell us more about his research on olive trees and water conservation, about the peach farm that he runs, and his podcast titled Planthropology. You can find the episodes about nature, random plant facts, garden and landscape tips and tricks, and whatever else pops into Vikram's head on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and CastBox. This episode is actually part of a special collab that we arranged with the Planthropology podcast, which is a very difficult word for me to keep pronouncing, so I hope everyone will stick with me. <laughs> um, and Vikram now is a guest with us here, but I will also be his guest on his next episode, so look it up to hear the fun conversation that we planned. But before you switch to that podcast, let me tell you a bit more about how to connect with us from the What Are You Going To Do With That podcast and with peers in academia. We are active on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and in addition to that, we have a blog on our website with tips for ECRs that connects to our YouTube channel with the same name. We'd love to hear what you think, so feel free to like, comment, and share. Okay, let's get back to Vikram. Vikram has a BA in horticulture with an emphasis on landscape design from Texas A&M University and also an AM in the same field from Texas Tech University. His thesis, then, was on the effects of drought stress and climate conditions on the Olea europea, which is an olive tree, I looked that up, the physiology and the fruit sets. So during his MA, Vikram was also a teaching and research assistant, and following his studies, he founded the company Thrive Gardens and Landscapes, but also Noble Farms. And Noble Farms is a family business that comprises multiple small farming operations, the largest of which being Noble Peaches. Vikram is still running that last one. However, after a few years, he went back to Texas Tech University to pursue a PhD in plant and soil science. He completed his work in 2020, so a congratulations is still in order, with his dissertation titled Behaviors, Attitudes and Technologies Influencing Urban Landscape Water Conservation in the Texas High Plains. Vikram has won many awards for his publications and fact sheets such as the Should I Run My Sprinklers and Frost Damage on Turf. And this year, he has won the Texas Tech University Diamond Award for Teaching Excellence. Therefore, I think Vikram deserves the title Plant Prof, as he is known as on his podcast Planthropology, and that's the handle you can find him with 
on TikTok for shorter bits of anything you want to know about plants. So welcome Vikram, I'm happy to have you as our guest because plant people are cool. How are you doing? I'm, I'm doing really well, thanks for having me on. Really great to be doing this collab with you and can't wait to be on your podcast as well. Yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, uh, getting to talk to you more about your experience and uh, uh, your background as well. So it's it's going to be a lot of fun. We'll get to that. Uh, but I do think I'm going to have my regular amaretto with me here. In the meantime, for me, it's the perfect time in the afternoon for a drink. But it's quite early with you, isn't it? Uh, yeah, so it's uh, just after 10 a.m. here where I am in Texas. And so I'm still drinking coffee. Uh, I probably drink more coffee than I should, and I drink it all day, so that's not necessarily unique to uh, morning time, but yeah, and I'm I'm on campus uh, as well, and they um, maybe dissuade <laughs> uh, uh, drinking liquor and things like that on campus, so uh, I'm sticking with coffee today. So it's not an Irish coffee? It's not, just, just good old-fashioned home-brewed coffee. Just what you need at 10 a.m.? Cheers. Pretty much. Cheers. Okay, then let's kick off with a few short questions, as I usually do. And my first one is, what does your morning look like until you get to the office? Uh, so it depends a little bit on the day. My wife is the education coordinator at a, a local science museum. And so yeah. uh, she. it depends a little bit on her morning. We have a five-year-old son who... Uh, we'll be starting school soon, but right now we're in the process of, you know, how do we get him to grandma's house every morning? And so it depends who has to be at work first. Uh, you know, running a greenhouse, I could probably get here at 6.30 every morning and still have plenty to do. But for the most part, it's trying to just to, to convince a uh, five-year-old that he wants to get up and get dressed and get out the door. But yeah, so then, then I drop him off or my wife drops him off and I come in and start opening up the greenhouse. So it really depends on the struggle of the of the kid in the morning with waking up. Absolutely. And and he's at this age now where, you know, he's really developing his little personality and mm -hmm. uh his personality is that he doesn't like to get up in the mornings. So it's it's a struggle sometimes. Wait till he gets to the age where he doesn't want to do anything you say anymore. Oh, I know. Oh, I know. Um, our our nephew is 11 and like we're just getting glimpses of our future. The future. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, good luck with that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> My next short question is, what is your favorite plant? Do you have one? Uh, I do, actually. And people ask me this a lot. There is a pine tree called the bristlecone pine that is native to several places throughout the Americas, but through uh, parts of California, Nevada, the western U.S. And these trees are ancient. They live... Um, the oldest one that they know of is about 5,000 years old. Wow. And we don't honestly know how long they can live because, again, we find some that are many thousands of years old and they still seem healthy and they still see like seem like they're, you know, going on. Wow. And so I think they're really cool looking trees. They have really interesting twisting architecture and they look almost like a... Uh, an impressionist painting in some ways and uh but they just live a, a very very long time they're adapted to a very dry very harsh climate and i i like them because they're survivors and they've seen a lot of things come and go uh through the world and they're still there sounds like a dinosaur version of a tree it kind of is yeah i should look that up nice 
My last short question is, what is the best thing about the place where you live? Um, I would say the sunsets. We have we have pretty spectacular sunsets. We uh, now it's funny because we are very flat and very dry, and uh, uh, we like to joke that you can. It's so flat you can watch your dog run away for two weeks. Um, but <laughs> it's uh, we're up, you know, on this the short to medium grass prairie. Uh, and if you were here 500 years ago, it would be two foot tall grass as far as you could see. And it, it gets kind of windy sometimes, so we get a lot of dust in the atmosphere, which doesn't sound great, and most of the time it's not. But when the sunset comes around, all of that dust reflects off the setting sun, and we get bright reds and oranges and pinks and lots of color in the sky. So we have really pretty spectacular sunsets. That sounds beautiful. should look that one up too. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, I'm ready to dig deeper into your story now. Uh, so I start at the beginning. Leading up to your BA and MA, when and how did you decide that horticulture was your thing? So uh, I think like a lot of people, it, it was sort of a roundabout way. I started off doing, so my, my first year of my undergrad was in biomedical engineering. Uh, and I wanted Something to go to medical school. Yeah, it was pretty about as far on the other side of science as you can get. Uh, I wanted to go to med school, and uh, my grandfather on my mom's side was a doctor, um, and my uh, grandma on that side too was a, a medical tech. And so they, you know, medicine was in my family. I grew up. Um, my mom and I lived with my grandparents till I was about ten, and so I grew up spending a lot of time in their doctor's office in the. Uh, in the clinic during the summers and things like that. So I really wanted to be a, a medical doctor. And then uh, a year of engineering and a year of uh, all of that. And um, I, it just, it wasn't for me. It, it uh, I, I interned at a doctor's office for a while and I realized that I don't like calculus and I don't really like blood. And both of those were going to be problems. <laughs> um, Sounds like it. And so... I spent a year um, sort of, or maybe not quite a year, maybe it was just one semester, undecided, just taking preliminary, you know, core class kind of stuff and spoke with a, a general general studies, an undecided, you know, advisor. And I was, I think I was 19. I already felt like I had no idea what I was doing in my life. Mm-hmm. And I was going on this, oh, but how am I going to make money? I had planned on being a doctor and this and that and all this stuff and this, this, guy who probably is is maybe rare in um this world of advising just stopped me and said well what do you like to do you know don't worry about the money don't worry about the careers like what 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 makes you happy and my earliest memories are gardening with my granddad uh he was you know he was a okay. medical doctor but uh we always had a garden we always had um, in fact, there's a, a picture of me at about two years old, standing with my hands on my hips, staring at <laughs> corn plants that were t- twice my height. And, you know, he was, he did medicine at a time when it wasn't quite so regulated in the U.S. Uh, and right. there wasn't so much to deal with, with the insurance companies and all the billing and that kind of thing. So he ran a uh, family practice on the, I know this is kind of a long roundabout answer to your question, but yeah, he okay. ran, he ran a uh, family practice on the um, lower income part of town and his clientele were generally uh, a little bit you know economically disadvantaged in a lot of ways so his patients would come in and they would pay him with 
baskets of onions or eggs from their backyard or whatever they've grown and he would accept whatever they could give him uh because he always felt like one food is important and he liked food and he liked vegetables and all that but he didn't think that someone's ability to pay for something should deny the medical care and so he would take whatever they could give and it would make my grandma so angry because she was like i can't (laughs) pay the phone bill with onions but yes uh so Growing up, I was always um, passionate and interested in, in vegetables and in plants. And so I told this this advisor that, I well, I like plants. And so he said, have you thought about horticulture? And so I, I got in and uh, studied landscaping for my undergrad. And, and uh, uh, actually, it was, a, it was a Bachelor of Arts, not a Bachelor of Science, which was a little bit different in the field. But uh, mm-hmm. it was, I, I loved it. I was instantly hooked. And I, was, I, I haven't looked back. No calculus. No calculus. Very, very, very little calculus. <laughs> the advisor sounds a little bit like my mom. She always told me to do what I like, and that's probably why I'm still a student, right? <laughs> doing what I like and not necessarily making money. <laughs> yeah, I get that too. <laughs> I do. <laughs> but you continue. You finish the BA and the MA, and you're quite the entrepreneur because you founded a few companies during and after your studies, right? Uh, so after working independently in industry already, what made you go back to university to pursue a PhD? Um, you know, that that's a, a good question. So I had run, um, uh, I was running a landscape company. Uh, I'd done that for about two or three years and it was going well, but you know, it, it gets quite hot here in the summers and that's when a lot of that work happens. And so I was outside one day working on a landscape job and it was, about 115 degrees Fahrenheit, which is what, 45C? It was hot. (laughs) And, you know, at the time, it didn't bother me too much. I was 23 or 24. I was in good shape. I could could do it. But a friend had messaged me uh, about a job opening with the extension service. So uh, Texas A&M has the, you know, the, in in Texas has an extension service. It's all public education. Um, It's sort of the uh, interpretive public ed wing of um this land grant college and there's you know they're all over the u.s they're all over the world and i i I sort of just applied for this job on a whim i said you know it's it's hot today it's gonna be hot the next (laughs) week why not you know uh so i ended up getting this job and shutting down my landscape business and i i i was back i i didn't realize how much i would miss education i think and okay. uh, getting out of it and getting in the industry because I, I love learning and I love teaching and all of that. And so I got to do a little bit of um, or a lot of public education, a little bit of sort of tan- tangent, tangential research work, that kind of thing. And uh, about a year into that job, a professor here at Texas Tech who I had collaborated with on some public programming said, hey, we have this research project coming up and we've got some funding and um, I was talking to the department chair and we would like you to consider, you know, coming back to do a PhD. And wow. at first I said, no way, like I'm not doing it. <laughs> I, I, I was in my head. I was still so burned out from my master's and from everything else. I, I Fair enough. And I started thinking about it and talking to my wife and uh, some other folks in my life and just decided, you know what, I, I think I am ready to to go back to school and I am ready to. Uh, get back into this. And so I actually still kept my job with the extension service and uh, started going back and working my PhD part-time. 
And you said funding, so that was helpful. It was. And, and so what was interesting is there was, uh, it, it was an interesting situation where um, there was funding for the research. So like there was plenty of money to do the work. But since I, I, I didn't want to quit my job, which was, I mean, at the time, a really a pretty good job with the benefits and all of that stuff. And okay. I didn't want at the time to step back into a, um, like a graduate student's salary. Right. Mm-hmm. I, and, and, you know, I think anyone listening out there that has been a graduate student on a graduate stipend maybe understands how tough that is. Right. And, yeah. um, or how tough it can be, you know, some people are in better situations than others, but I knew our university and I knew how much that would be. And it would have been taking like a, you know, a 50% pay cut from what I was making, um, for the extension Which is service. also why it was important for you to discuss it with your wife, because this is something that was going to affect both of your lives. Right. A- absolutely. And, you know, we were talking about having kids. We were talking about all of that. And it was like, I, I can't at this point in my life take that, you know, that, that pay cut. I just couldn't do it. And so I started working part time on my PhD. And um, what was really nice is, is, you know, the extension service is part of a university. And so they allowed me to, um, take up to four hours of face-to-face class per semester without having to take any time off or anything like that. That, that was part of the, uh, I guess, benefits of this job. And uh, I don't know if I was really supposed to, but I doubled up a little bit and they let me take one face-to-face class and I took an online class at the same time. So I got through my coursework pretty quickly um, okay. trying to level up some stuff. And so, yeah, there was plenty of funding for the research, but uh, I wasn't actually employed by the university when I started. And so it, it it leads to this interesting dynamic where my advisor only felt comfortable asking me for so much because he wasn't paying me, right? And so it was, right. it was kind of a uh, a weird dynamic a little bit that, based on my personality, probably slowed me down a little bit because he didn't, he didn't feel com- – he didn't feel like he had the um, – I don't know what the right word is, but he he didn't feel like really saying, okay, you have to be here these hours because you've got this job, right? You, he didn't, he wasn't like, you need to be here till midnight doing research and then go to work in the morning. He kind of let me t- be on the slow track. And my personality is very much that I am easily distracted. And you've seen my resume. I like to start new things and try new things. And so it, it took me a little bit longer than I had anticipated, but I don't think I would go back and change the way I did it. I really liked that whole you know, getting to do a little bit of both uh, process. Sounds good. So you said that it took you much longer than you anticipated the PhD to be, but I think that's quite normal. I haven't actually met anyone who told me, oh, I was done faster than I thought it would be. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's part of the whole PhD thing. Yeah, and, and what's it, it's interesting because there's always... There's always so much more. You don't know what you don't know getting into it, right? You don't yeah. know all the ins and outs and how long it takes. Writing took me the longest. It took me forever to get my paper written. And I, for a lot of reasons, uh, most again is I'm easily distracted, but <laughs> but I had other responsibilities and stuff. And so, uh, you know, about halfway through, so I started in 2015 uh, with my program and in... 2018 at the beginning of the year I actually took a job with Texas Tech the job I'm currently in mm-hmm. uh, and so I moved from in you know, the extension service to the university and I thought in my head oh I'll be on campus it'll be so much easier to write and stuff it 
I, I didn't account for learning a new job and like having all this other stuff to do. Right. And so it's still, even being here, it took me about two years to get everything finished up and written and all that. And, uh, but you know what? It, it happened. It's over. It's, it's finished. It was, it was good. I'm, I'm glad to be done for sure. Yeah. And like you said, no regrets. No regrets. Also great. All right. So tell me more about the actual PhD and the research. What was it about? So, um, a big concern, um, where I live up here on the high plains of Texas or South plains of Texas, uh, is, is water resource availability, which I know is probably a big thing in your part of the world too. Definitely. And, you know, I tell, actually, I tell people quite a bit that I would put our like irrigation technology, our conservation technology in this part of the world up against anyone in the world, except for maybe Israel. I think you all do very <laughs> well over there. Uh, so we are in this place that is rapidly expanding in terms of population. It's very agricultural, but we're in a population center that um, right now we have about 300,000 people and they're thinking in the next 10 years, we may hit 400,000 people in our little region. Like it's growing quickly. People are moving here fast, but our infrastructure and our water availability is a little bit in question. Uh, it's, we have a little bit of surface water, but it's primarily groundwater. And so a big area of research where I am is how do we make the resources we have last longer? And so uh, my PhD kind of had two parts. We did a, a field study um, looking at some different technologies that are intended to make your water resources go farther in a turf grass setting, so in a, a lawn setting. Um, and it's... Uh, some of it was we used some remote sensors to manage, to measure like canopy temperature and air temperature and all that other stuff uh, with the idea that that could like trigger irrigation when the plants actually needed water. Instead of on a set schedule, it waters when the plants need water okay. uh, based on their physiology. And then the other part of it is, okay, we have new technologies, have all this. How do we make people actually use them? You know, ha ha what motivates people to actually use it? So we look, we did a big survey. And we surveyed about 300, I say big, it's not huge, but we surveyed about 300 households throughout our region and asked them uh, questions about what their current landscape management practices are in terms of water, uh, asked them uh, how much money they spend, how much water they apply, and then what outside factors might um, contribute to them changing the way they use water, whether that's okay. pricing or education or regulation or whatever else. And we, we saw some pretty interesting things. It turns out that probably pricing is the biggest motivator, right? Not surprising. No. Uh, but it has to be enough. So like from our survey results, and you know, surveys are what they are. <laughs> uh, there, there's always bias. There's all, but you know, maybe a 10% increase in water price isn't enough. But a 50% increase in water price may be enough to start affecting behavior and the way that people, you know, conserve their water. But we also saw that education is a huge part of it. Okay. People don't know what they don't know. And if they're not aware of the, like, water issues that we have, if they're not aware of best management practices, it's really hard for them to care enough to actually change their behavior. So we found that there's a lot of potential benefits to the way that a city or a water authority uh, messages their customers uh, in terms of their water usage. So there is a lot in education here. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Big role. Yeah, I think so. Because, you know, we we talk a lot about, you know, at least in the U.S., and I can't speak for anywhere else, but from the time that our uh, students or our kids are in primary school, in, in uh, you know, uh, elementary school, they're constantly ter- told, you know, turn off the water when you're washing your hands or brushing your teeth or X, Y, and Z. But we don't often talk about water use in the landscape, which in the summer in the U.S. accounts for 60 to 70 percent of household water consumption. That's a lot. It's a lot. And mm-hmm. so educating people on, okay, if you, you know, run your sprinklers more efficiently, if you water in this way or if you plant these kinds of plants actually can lead to big water savings and big resource uh, management improvements. So small solutions can be big things. Absolutely. That sounds good. So I can tell that you're passionate about education, about research, and you're also eager to share it with everyone. And that's probably why you why you started your podcast, Planthropology. So what has it been like for you to host a podcast? And when did you start with that? So it has been a lot of fun. Um, I'm about a year and a half in. Uh, I started okay. in October of 2019. Uh and so actually my first guest on the podcast is, was an old friend of mine um, named Kyle Tengler, and he's been on a couple of times. And he's, you know, a fellow plant nerd. Uh, we get together and we talk about plants. Uh, you know, we're, we're those people. And so soon after I took this job, he was up here uh, just chatting because we had actually worked together in this greenhouse as master's students, the one that I'm running now, which was kind of okay. cool. Uh, and so we were just chatting about, you know, what was going on here and all of that. And we were talking about the ways that indigenous peoples in our part of Texas manage the lands through, uh, uh, fire and burning and, um, different land management strategy. We were talking about that. And at the end of the, the conversation, I said, gosh, this would make an interesting podcast. <laughs> and we laughed because neither of us believed it at the time. And then this, so this was probably in. I don't know, March or April of that year. And it just stuck in my head. And then we were interviewing for a new department chair in in our department. Mm -hmm. And during his interview process, he said he was talking a lot about needing to close the, the feedback loop between research and the public. And, you know, we we gatekeep a lot in academia. We take all of our research and we write it in journal articles and then we put it in a journal that the public can't access. Or mm-hmm. if they can access, it's hard to understand. It's There's multiple levels of like barriers to understanding and education right, there. Definitely, which is one of the issues, really, with the system. It, ab- absolutely. And, and, you know... I like to look at it, and I think he looks at it the same way, that we're largely taxpayer-funded, at least in the U.S. Uh, our mm-hmm. our funding comes from, you know, National Science Foundation and, and other places that are funded by taxpayers. So they're paying for a product that we're not giving them. Right. You know, they pay for the research. They pay for the information. And then we just kind of hide it a little bit. And so he was talking about good science communication and how do we get this information to the public that can actually use it. Cause we do lots of work in here in um, uh, gardening and crop production and food production and water conservation, all these things. And so he was talking about doing um, social media and traditional media and podcasts. And I heard him say, Ooh, podcasts, right? I was like, <laughs> Oh, I've been thinking about this. 
so I just kind of, I just went for it. I just kind of started it. I didn't tell anyone. Uh, <laughs> I probably should have, but I didn't. <laughs> and, you know, I, I was a couple of episodes in and I finally was like, okay, I should probably go talk to uh, Dr. Richie about this. And he was all about it. He was so excited that we were doing this. And yes. so he was actually one of my early guests too. He was on episode like six and he was great. He talked about uh, uh, academia and all these things. And so uh, the university, our college, our department have been so supportive of this project. Um, it's actually, uh, outreach is actually written into my job description now, public outreach. And oh, so cool. uh, I can, I'm, you know, I'm at work right now. And they, they let me record, they let me do this kind of stuff uh, as part of my job and, and part of our outreach and recruitment efforts. That's great. I love that. So for you, it's definitely a way of doing SciCon, right? Yes. yes so you also sure. talk about your research on the podcast and you have different guests. Uh, what do you like most about doing the podcast? And do you have a favorite episode that is the first one I should listen to next? Oh gosh, that's so hard. I, I think I've thought about this a lot and uh, I don't know that I have a great answer for that. Um, I will say uh, one of the ones that, uh, well, there were two parts to, to your question, but uh, I'm pulling up my, my list of episodes right now. <laughs> um, I would have probably done the same if you asked me <laughs> the same question. Well, because they're all so different, right? There's so much... Um, I think one of the things that I take from it the most is I I can I, I fancy myself a lifetime learner, right? I love learning. I love the experience of like discovering new science and different things that I didn't know. And so, getting to interview a lot of these guests, they get they tell me a lot of things I didn't know. I get to learn every episode, even people right. that I've known for years. Like I learn something new every episode. So that's been really exciting for me. I recognize that. That's nice. You know, and I, I'm trying to think. I, I I don't know that I have a favorite episode, but one of, the, I think, the most meaningful episodes for me was uh, episode 20. So this came out last July, about a year ago. Uh, it's called Influencing Conservation, Finding Balance, and the Connectedness of Everything. So my guest on that episode is one of my best friends. We met during our master's. Her name's uh, Dr. Becky Bowling. And uh, we were just, we've been friends for 12 years now, you know, over a decade. Nice. And uh, it was, you know, it was just cool getting to catch up. She lives in a different place now. We don't keep up as much as we used to. So that one was pretty meaningful. I think uh, one of the more recent episodes that just came out on June 2nd, actually, with a, a guy named Joe Buck about dendrochronology. And we got to talk about really old trees and... Uh, the dinosaur uh, tree, too. Uh, right, right. <laughs> yeah. And we, we talked about... Uh, struggles with mental health we talked about some of our similar life experiences in academia and i think like finding people that have had similar experiences to me through this that drove them in such interesting directions in their career has been really fascinating sounds like it okay so i'll have a look and i make sure that wherever people found this episode that they're listening to now will also be able to find your plant herbology podcast and those episodes you just described cool so you also have this passion for passing on information, which basically is teaching, right? It's like your second passion, I guess, after plants. You <laughs> have thought, taught a lot, and you also recently won this award for teaching excellence. So do you have any tips for teaching assistants out there? Uh, gosh, that's such a good question. Um, 
the, I've got, I've got two, I've got two, I think. Well, I, I probably could have more, but the, the two big ones for me are care about what you're teaching. Uh, f- find a way to care about what you're teaching. And I know that, you know, especially as a teaching assistant, it, that's not always like the easiest thing because you're told, hey, you're going to teach this. Okay, <laughs> you know, great. Um, hopefully it's pretty close in your field and it's something you can find passion for. But uh, people, whether they realize it or not, people can sense, I think, whether you're genuine or not whether you actually care about what you're saying or not. Like how dogs smell fear. Yeah. Yeah, totally. <laughs> um, but I think like the the best gift you can give your students is to be passionate about the thing you're teaching. And even if there's subjects that you're not super familiar with, do enough legwork, do enough research. And I know we're all busy and I know there's a lot that, especially as grad students and TAs that we have to do that we're asked of, that's asked of us. But put in just a little extra time um, because I've had TAs throughout the years that have changed my academic career and have changed my life in, in a positive way. And and I think we fall into this trap sometimes of, oh, I'm just a TA. It doesn't really matter what I do. But you have a closer, more personal connection with students a lot of times than the faculty do. And so you have the opportunity to really influence uh, the next generation of of folks that are going to be entering the workforce, entering academia, driving our society. So find a way to care is, is a big one. And I I think the other one, and this is, this is maybe for anyone in academia is find a creative outlet. I I don't, I don't care what it is. If you like to uh, crochet, I I play music and I do some woodworking um, and I like photography and I do a few other things, but Find something that you can do that's just for you uh, and and make the time to do it. Even if it's an hour a week, even if it's that for your mental health, for your own ability to focus on the things that you have to do, you have to find time to do something you want to do. We are, we are I don't think, built as humans for the constant grind and the constant stress of academia sometimes. And you have to find an outlet. That sounds like a very good tip. I've spoken about that a lot with guests on this podcast, uh, about the importance of hobbies or maybe doing sports, uh, sometimes really for yourself, but sometimes even to meet other people so you're not home alone, working on your own research by yourself all the time. So I think there's a lot in that tip. And then one more thing about the teaching and winning the award. Um, Mm -hmm. Do you know what makes a teacher really excellent like even more so than the more basic things that you just said uh you know i i it's funny because i i got this award and i didn't know it was even a thing i'd been nominated for and it was pretty cool there were 15 people across the university that were selected for this and so it was actually kind of a big deal and i was looking back at the past year and i i don't know that i could tell you the thing i did that make like that would make me stand out i i don't really know i was just i felt like doing my job but at the same time i do feel like recognize here's one then um recognizing that your students are human beings Mm -hmm. that maybe sounds like well duh but i think we struggle with that as an institution as as an academic institution 
they have their own personal struggles. They have their own mental health challenges. They have their, their, they have other things in their lives than the homework you're giving them. And so if we are teaching to people that are complicated instead of just to someone sitting in a seat in our classroom, we can be a lot more effective. Uh, I am in some cases maybe more transparent with my students than at times I should be, maybe. But I tell them, I'm, I'm honest with them about my own personal struggles. Um, I, I tell them that, you know, hey, I'm behind on grading this assignment because of this and this. And I'm not necessarily specific, but hey, I've got some yeah. challenges in my life. I'm behind because of this. I've had this thing. Here's things that I've struggled with as a student. Because I think the thing that we ask of people, again, whether consciously or not, is how did you get to where you are? How did you, how are you surviving? How did you make it? And I think we don't owe anyone anything except to be genuine. And I think with our students, if we're genuine, if we care about them as humans, as well as being as, as well as caring about them as learners, um, we can really have a greater impact on their lives than just the information we share. All right. Thanks for sharing. I'll take that with me. Then we already got to uh, the most important question, or at least it is on this podcast. That's why it has this name. You have the PhD, you're doing the podcast, and you still have a job. But what are you going to do with the PhD? Uh, are you planning to stay in academia, or are you going somewhere else? Uh, I, I think I am planning on staying in academia. Um, I overall like it. You know, there, there's always challenges, but I like it. I like, like I said, I'm a lifetime learner. I'm passionate about education. And I feel like uh, in academia is the place that I can do that the most effectively. I can teach and educate. Um, I don't know exactly what that looks like long term. You know, I am uh, a lecturer right now. I'm the greenhouse manager guy, and I kind of love what I'm doing. Uh, yeah, I could probably find, you know, I could probably go the tenure track route and get make make more money and all that stuff. But I like sort of the freedom in what I do. And I like the um, maybe interesting and different ways I can approach education without having to uh, chase research dollars all the time and right. write grants and all that. So uh, I don't know what the future looks like exactly, but I'm planning to stay around the, you know, academic world and hopefully keep running a greenhouse for a while. Sounds good. So you haven't been looking into postdocs or other things yet because where you're at right now works pretty much. And then you can have a little bit more time to enjoy being a PhD right now <laughs> yeah. before you throw yourself into a new project again. Oh, and I was going to say, and I, I get the opportunity to help with some research and do a little research. I, uh, I'm actually, I have a grad student uh, starting in the fall. I'm co-chairing a, a grad student's project and... It's interesting. He's going to be sort of my assistant manager here at the greenhouse for his assistantship. And then he'll be doing research on um, hydroponics and strawberries and some other stuff. And so uh, I get to do some research. I get to work with students. I kind of have a, a pretty, pretty cool gig right now. Strawberries. Sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Okay. I would like to finish with another few short questions. Okay. Um, they're usually the same. So the first one is no surprise. What do you consider to be your most important contribution to your field? So some of the work in water conservation, um, showing that one, we can be more efficient with our water from a, a plant use and technology standpoint, but also that um, 
if we communicate well and we message correctly, we can influence the way that people use water as well. Sounds good. And you also did a lot of those little fact sheets that you also got awards for, right? So does that also have to do with that project, with that? That was, uh, so that was not directly related to my PhD. That was part of my um, job with the extension service. So that was more just public outreach, kind of one pager, little uh, either digital or physical uh, information things. But um, that is, I will say, part of what inspired some of our research because I started to see that people see these, they appreciate them, they can understand them easily, and then they actually change their behavior. So anecdotally, I saw it through my job, and then we start, we sort of actually built um, parts of my research around that. Okay, so it did have a connection to each other. That's nice. It did. Then who has impressed you most with what they have accomplished? Oh goodness, that is a great question. Uh, I, I actually I was thinking about this earlier, and I don't know that I have a great answer. Um, so, uh, I, not not it's going to sound like I'm sucking up, and I'm not. But uh, our department chair, I think, is an excellent. Uh, his name's Dr. Glenn Ritchie. He is a agronomist, so he studies water as well. But also, uh, he works a lot in cotton. Uh, we grow a lot of cotton in our part of the world. Uh, probably about 25% of the U.S. output of cotton comes from the little region around where I live. So we grow a lot of cotton. I, I have always been impressed with the way that he has run his career because he's a very um, accomplished researcher. He's an excellent educator, uh, professor, uh, you know, lots of publications. He actually just made full professor. Nice. But I feel like he has done that without doing it at the expense of anyone else. Right, he has just done good work. He has just like uh, been genuinely kind and compassionate to the people around him. He's a great boss, uh, but I, I I like to think that that is uh, it, it. Gives me hope that it's possible because we talk about like you know research and all of that being pretty cutthroat sometimes. And Dr. Ritchie for me is a good example of how it doesn't have to be. You can still get the things done. You can still be successful. You can still get far in your career um, and take people along with you uh, without doing things at their expense. That sounds like a really good role model. And you touch upon a very important issue, again, in academia and the system. Um, is this one of the reasons that's holding you back for trying to pursue tenor track at the moment, at least? Uh, honestly, yeah. I mean, in some ways it is because I... You know, I have seen, you know, I, I have, you know, friends and colleagues here that have been um, going up for tenure over the past couple of years. And for one, I see the stress that that puts on them. Um, you know, they're early career researchers and, you know, whether we say it out loud or not, they're expected to work a lot more than the 40 hours a week that they're mm -hmm. on paper paid for, right? I, I think that's the long and short of it. And I see the the stress and the anxiety and everything else that that causes. And I have, I'm trying to, I'm just, I'll just say it, whatever. Uh, I have a lot of issues like philosophical issues with, with our tenure system, with the way that mm -hmm. it works. I think it is, uh, at least in the sciences, it is not designed for innovative science. I don't think it is designed for really furthering our fields. I think it is designed to crank publications out and find funding and that's it. And then hide um, it behind a paywall. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I, I don't think the tenure project is, uh, or the tenure system is designed for people that are early in their career, uh, excited about taking chances and, and innovating and all those things. Because sometimes you get a lot of failure with innovation and that's hard to publish. And so um, I have a lot of, I think, philosophical issues with the way that we approach tenure. And and there's there's one train of thought that you have to be in the system to change a system. Right. But part of me doesn't, want to have to be the person I would have to be or that it seems on the surface that you would have to be to be successful in that and get to a place where you can change it because the fear is that you know you you make your way through the system and then it changes you instead of it going the other way around and again I think Dr. Richie's a great example that it doesn't have to uh but it, it gives me some pause for sure all right well yeah, thanks again for sharing that. I think it's very important and needs to be said. I don't think you're the only one. Not, I mean, me as well and also other guests I've been speaking with uh, have raised serious doubts about how everything works. And that's something we need to keep saying. And hopefully someone will be listening who might already be in there and yeah. change it from there. So having all of that in mind and the stressfulness with it, the last question is... How do you relax after a hard day of work? Um, I, you know, I like to go home and play with my son. Uh, he is a uh, he's at the age where he's getting into video games, so we play a lot of Mario. <laughs> um, I like that. And, yeah, it's fun. We you know we. Uh, I, I've got and this is not you know they're they're not endorsing this, but the my Nintendo Switch is one of the most like the best things I've ever bought. <laughs> um, <laughs> but but yeah, we play a lot of video games. We uh, my wife does too. We um just we just like to do things that are not work related we go for walks we uh you know spend some time out at my parents house they live outside of town on some land so we get to go play out there and uh and then personally yeah i like to do photography and uh play music and those those things kind of relax me and center me a little bit do you play certain instruments uh yeah so i play uh the guitar i play the bass and a little bit of piano uh, oh, that's and... a lot. That's nice. <laughs> uh, yeah, music's been a big part of my life since I was probably about, well, maybe 10, you know, most of my life. Uh, and if I ever, this, I, I know how this is going to sound to all the, the um, academics listening, but when I get some free time, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I really want to uh, maybe try to pick up a new instrument sometime soon and uh, just just try something new. Cool. I used to play the saxophone as a kid, but I haven't done it in a long time so maybe i'll get back to that at some point too yeah <laughs> cool well thanks become for sharing your story it was very nice to have a fellow podcast host as a guest this time and i'd also like to thank our audience for listening we're looking forward to connect with you on social media and while you're at it check out becomes podcast planthropology and his twitter and tiktok accounts with the handle at the plant professor or the plant prof, actually. And if you'd like to hear the two of us some more, listen to the episode with me as a guest on his podcast. Do you have any next topics in mind for next episodes? Um, you know, I have uh, I have a, a long list. I'm behind on recording. I think we're always behind on everything. At least I am. I can't speak for anyone else. I feel like I'm always playing catch up. Um, but I've got some cool ones. Uh, um... Uh, there's someone I, I spoke to recently for another project, and we're going to talk about maybe fire ecology 
and what uh, you know native wildfires and how that shapes landscapes. Um, we're talking about seed dispersal with some some different folks and how uh, different trees and different plants get their seeds out into the world and how they make new plants. And um, I've got an episode coming up, I think, uh, where we we're just going to talk about tea and different kinds of teas and where tea comes from and all of that kind of stuff. So uh, I've got some interesting stuff coming up in um, probably starting in August. That sounds good. We'll be looking out for it. 